And this is Who the Valley's podcast, episode 13 with TJ Hoover and Chris Smith. TJ, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing well. Excited to be here as always. How about yourself? Yep, the, the weather's a lot better today. I know just recently it looked like, I mean, the world was ending around here. The trees were falling over in my backyard. Trash can lids were flying into the lake. Yeah. I mean, it was it was hectic, but looking forward to the interview with Coach Billy Kennedy today. Yeah, I'll be interested to see his perspective, especially being able to compare the OVC and the SEC. And, uh, you know, I actually had the opportunity to hear him speak several years ago at uh, Nike Clinic down in Tunica, Mississippi. Yes, we went for the clinic, not to gamble <laughs> at Tunica. And it was funny because he was speaking on Saturday when he was still a coach at Murray State. By the time we were headed home on Sunday, he was the head coach at Texas A&M. And his assistant coach was Steve Prohm, was sitting right behind us during one of the sessions. Talk about a turnaround. Yeah. So, I mean, that had to be a hectic weekend for him. Well, I know you went down there for the clinic, but, I mean, tell me you at least threw like a quick 20 in. I don't think that year. One year we went and played the slots a little bit, but I got to the point, like, I'm not a big gambler. You know, I, I'll play the slots a little bit. But I went first time I ever went and played blackjack was in Tunica with my buddies. And I lost 35 bucks in about seven minutes. I'm like, no. <laughs> uh, you know what I could have done with that $35? I don't know. But it would have been a lot more fun than what I just saw happen. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big gambler myself. I, uh, uh, who am I kidding? I love to gamble. Sports. Yeah. Roulette. Yeah. You know, and I always, I always enjoy going to Tunica because we found a place there on the northern – uh, part of Mississippi right against the state line uh, and we go to Beale Street and enjoy the, the sights and sounds of Memphis a little bit too so okay. that's kind of and then in the mornings we'd head down to the clinic so during today's episode we'll break down uh, the Evansville schedule as they're they just released uh, their full non-conference schedule we'll get into uh, our thoughts on college basketball being in a bubble you know with college football basically saying today or the Big Ten that they're done for the fall and pushing it to the uh, spring, hopefully, and then Pac-12 following suit. So there's been conversations about bubbles with college basketball. Uh, as I just teased a minute ago, Coach Billy Kennedy, former coach at Murray State and Texas A&M, will be joining the show, talk about his time at Murray State. And then towards the end of the show, we will also do our final Mount Rushmore with Wichita State and Tennessee Martin. But with that, TJ, uh, we'll get into the Evansville schedule here first. As we saw via the D1 docket, uh, I think they're, what, the 16th team to release their uh, schedule thus far? Yeah, what did he say? Usually by this time he has 190 schedules and he's in the teens. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's got to be frustrating for a guy who just loves I mean, it's like, you know, sometimes you hear the phrase trying to drink from a fire hose. Whatever the opposite of that is, is, is that's what he's doing right now. Well, you just wonder, like... I, when are they going to start trickling out? You know, there's so many obstacles teams are jumping over now, whether they had games scheduled with a contract and may have been backed out because they're trying to find games closer to home for, you know, to minimize travel. Exactly. But when you look at Evansville's schedule, um, they play a lot of teams in the Ohio Valley. Right. So, it's almost like they just got together with them. And, and geographically, a lot of them make sense. I mean, you're looking at Belmont isn't, you know – too far away going to nashville uh and and that's a home and home too 
yeah, so, you know, and then they play UT Martin, and then you see the outlier kind of Dallas, Texas going to play SMU, but then Eastern Illinois, Tennessee Tech, and, you know, so all of those are pretty centralized. They make sense from a geographic standpoint, trying oh, to sure. learn how long, and it may be a bit of the financial crunch, too, like, hey, we can't be flying to all these places. Well, no. And a lot of those are bus trips, <clears throat> you know, like even they're playing uh, Ball State from the MAC and... I think they have, yeah they have Purdue as well so those are in-state trips you know I mean in-state's relative if you're going from one end of Tennessee to the other if you're you know if you're going from Memphis you know to Knoxville that's that's that's, that's, that's let's take a plane coach yeah that's, but you know so saying in-state is my point it is not always a short trip well no and they also play SEMO so they have one two three four the two games against Belmont they have six games out of their non-conference against uh, the Ohio Valley. And as you said, really their furthest game is at SMU, and that's that's probably one of their you know yeah they'll probably hit up a booster, get the little, plane fare taken care of, and I don't I don't know if that's considered and it's a bigger school, but it's not really one of the big buy games that you would think about. Mm-hmm. It's more or less the Purdue right. would be that game right, um, but it's going to be interesting to see when some of these other schedules start to you know come out because there's a even when you look at the D1 docket, there it's just like basically blank. Mm-hmm. Like there's like three games on there for most right. schools. And now I think, I think I just looked at it yesterday. I think wasn't it Drake? According to what Charles had, <clears throat> didn't have any of their non-conference yet. No, um, you know. So I just and there's got to be all sorts of reasons. Just the, and the biggest one we're going to point to is COVID. Yeah, you know, it's trying to figure out like why do we put all this in on paper and have to tear it all up like football's have to deal with right now too because nothing's permanent right now no it's it, you could think it's permanent and then you know a day mm-hmm. later it's not for sure um but when you look at the evansville schedule from a season they had last year it, it kind of works out well for them yeah they have the purdue and smu game but the other games are kind of more or less it's it's what you would want after a season like they just right. had. Yeah, they, they definitely struggled. You mean you thought they going to the mountaintop, beating Kentucky, and then just those poor guys. Just I, I can't imagine what it was like. And the coaches that you know, Coach Licklider came in and just did a tremendous job because so much of that had to be, you know, like uh, psychological management. And, oh yeah. You know, I've said it before. The coaches take losses a lot harder than kids do, but at some point, you almost become immune to losing if that makes sense like you just like you just don't as a player you just kind of like yeah we're just used to it and you're and i think there was even a a part of me watching all those games that when is evansville going to fall apart you know when is it going to they're going to kind of run out of gas and just everything that happens so hopefully this is something they can get some of those games and you know and that'll help them going into the conference season except when they play southern illinois (laughs) that's always my perspective though yeah yeah, you know, you hope from the players' perspective too, and also the program that you know, with the schedule they have laid out, they can use some of these games that are more or less fifty-fifty uh, games. That you win some of them, that'll help you know build, you know, rebuild some of their mm-hmm. program and help right. you know get some uh, recruits coming back through. Uh, but also the college basketball bubble—it's kind of been a talk here in recent days, over the last week as well. Um, you know, with college football, some of these bigger conferences postponing till the spring. Nobody knows if that's even going to be, right. you know, you know, a factor then if that's even going to be, you know, played. But uh, 
a lot of people have been talking about college basketball. Is a bubble, you know, a very reasonable, um, you know, option. But there's a lot of stuff that goes into mind for a bubble. It's not like the NBA. It's not like the NHL where you have 30 teams. We're talking over 350 now mm-hmm. for college basketball. So when you hear the bubble, do you think, okay, there's going to be a certain amount broken up into region or is it going to be broken up into conferences or maybe not even conferences? It's more or less grouped in with like maybe, you know, a team's average RPI over like the last five years or something like that. Yeah, I think that's one of the logistical things you have to figure out. I also think how do you do, how do you try to stick with your ideology that they're student athletes, which a lot of people think is a joke, and not have those kids in class even more. You know, uh, I can tell you from firsthand experience that a lot of those classes are going online. I've talked to a couple of kids that you know I have one class that's meeting in person and. So you're already kind of close to it, but you're at that point, you're 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 pulling back. You're not even pretending anymore. No, I think. And you know, you think you hear the numbers from the NBA and the NHL perspective that the billion dollars that they spent to do these things. Oh yeah. Where's that money coming from? <clears throat> if you do that, even if you did it regionally, and you know, and I saw something. I think it was yesterday about being able to go in Kansas City that they have a couple arenas that would suffice. And I think of St. Louis with Chaffetz and Enterprise Center and all the places in Chicago. But then you think, well, those are where the numbers are going up. How do you keep those kids isolated and, you know, and still have them going to class? Now, there are some schools, like I know Notre Dame, they started classes yesterday, which would have been August 10th. And they're only going until Thanksgiving. Yeah. You know, so that kind of gives you a bigger window of they're not in class, but you're still going to have to address it come mid to late January. You know, you just wonder because there's a lot of money that's going to be involved in a decision like this. You know, what are the pros to it? What are the cons? It's no secret. College football is the big money maker out of any sport from a university. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it billions of dollars. So if it's not played, it's lost for not only the NCAA college football, but that money that's generated for those teams that also goes to some of these other right. athletic programs. Mm-hmm. And yes, March Manus, you know, that's that's a big money that's maker too. Big one. Yeah. But when you compare that to what college football makes, it's north and south. And it's not even close. Mm-hmm. But it's still a big money maker for college basketball. So money will be a big issue, but I did like your point where you said, you know, Kansas City, they have a couple of arenas. Okay, well, St. Louis does too. You said Shafitz, uh, um, Scott Trade, and or Enterprise Center now. Excuse me. Um, and you could even realistically maybe use use the dome. SIUE. Well, SIUE and the dome. Right. Because yeah, you may think, well, they're going to be charging. You know, it's going to be an arm and a leg to like let's say rent uh, Enterprise, rent the dome for however long. But then the way I look at it is. There can't be too many organizations knocking down the door to say, hey, we, we want to reserve it for this weekend. Yeah, because we can sell tickets because that's why we're in this predicament is nobody can sell tickets exactly. right now have thousands of people on hand. So I would hope, like, if you're the if you're the Dome or, what is it, the St. Louis? Uh, the Dome is St. Louis Center. Or, it's the Dome and America Center. America I'm trying to Center think of that commission, like the people that oh, like. St. Louis Sports Commission. Yeah, there you go. Um, you know, if you're them. I would hope that you're like, okay, we have to be reasonable here. You know, we want to make some money too, but we, right. if we say we want to charge X amount of dollars, well, then they're going to walk away. 
because the NCAA is already losing and schools are losing so much already. We got to make it somewhat reasonable for them. But also, while we're making a little bit here where it'd just be sitting vacant. Right. You know, how do they cover the cost of having people that are still going to have to staff the building, et cetera, cover their electrical or water costs, things like that. But, you know, you see that all over anyway. Like you see sure. a business like that has shuttered its doors and the building's for lease and it sits there for years. And like, well, why don't you lower your price and get somebody in there? I mean, I can pay you less than what you're asking for, but it's still more than what you're getting. Yeah. You know, so what what's that middle ground? But then who does that negotiation? You know, that's kind of the, you don't have, I think I saw something about this on ESPN yesterday talking about college football. You don't have that one leader. <laughs> you know, football, basketball, hockey, yep. you have the commissioner. Now, they're taking in a lot of other opinions and have a lot of, you know, smart people around them to help out. But you don't have this, that, that one person to take you in that direction. You have, you know, a group of people, I'm sure, that are kind of the big wigs. You think sure. of the, the football commissioners for the conferences, but they don't have one person like, all right, here's what's most feasible for everybody. And I think, you know, I always like to use the analogy. Imagine if you had two head coaches for your baseball team and one coach tells you to play in d- double play depth <laughs> and the other guy tells you to cover the whole, but you know, to your left you yeah. know, as a second baseman you're like well, I, I can't do both coach I can't, I can't help my first baseman out and be close enough <laughs> yeah. to, hit to the shortstop that I can get there pick and choose yeah, so yeah, you need to have one person one voice say if they both if two people give you you know differing instruction the person you listen to is the, the head honcho yep and and that's where I think some of the the miscommunication and some of the the issues that came in because you know you, you look at right now we'll use college football for example each conference is on their own to make up their mind. Right. And while I do like that to where they have the option of doing that them, themselves, but th- that also leads a lot of, a lot of errors too. Like, um, and it gets, it gets the fans, the, the media involved, like, okay, if the sec is going to wait this long and hope to play, why can't the big 10 do the same thing? So in a way I do think it should just be like, Hey, we're going to do this. We're all going to be a part of it. We're going to push it off till now. I think I think that would probably save a whole lot of hassle. Then, do you think there's a fear talking football? Do you think there's a fear on the NCAA's part if they did send down an edict that those Power Five would be like, we're going to go do something on our own? Uh, yeah, it, I would think it's. I mean, it's, quite been, possible. it's been kicked around, and now that the players are doing the hashtag, we want to play. Yeah. You know, maybe they kind of get that kind of, all right, this is the time we can do it. This is the time to show it. And, you know, then the schools and the conferences that we pull for, sure. are the ones losing out because yeah. they don't have that football money trickling down to their schools as well. Well, so I think it's just, it's, just, it's so, that's why it's a tough question. If it were an easy question, we'd, we we'd be, be over and done with it. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's kind of the same con, same concept. You know, you talk about, you know, with our conferences, you know, you know, kind of taking the brunt of it, you know, with not being able to play those bigger schools because that those buy games help not only football, but the, you know, the other uh, athletic programs as well. You look at that from a basketball standpoint, if you go back to the bubble, how do you justify it if it's if it's based off of like RPI, like or, you know, because if you're not getting to play, let's say if uh, Tennessee Tech, if they don't get to play like, uh, you know, Tennessee, right? Um, 
the, the, they don't they they don't get any money. No buy game. Like right. is is a buy game still viable if it's in a bubble? Because it's I, all I at a neutral not. site. It's at a neutral site. There's no fans. Right. You know, no schools yeah. really making money during yeah, this. There's a reason in this fictitious situation that Tennessee would bring a Tennessee Tech in. Hey, we can get a win. We can sell another game's worth of season tickets. Or, you know, and, you know, some people from Tennessee Tech that live in the area, maybe some alum, they come to watch too. You know, we know we're going to have a full house and, you know, give our fans a win too. Yeah. So I, there's, a, there's a lot going on, but I th- hopefully sooner or later there'll be hope well i would say hopefully a plan but there could be a plan and then it just gets canceled and they have to re-backtrack and yeah i don't know trial by error till till we get uh a vaccine yeah and or a treatment no let's just go back to 2018 and we're all sports (laughs) were a full go this wasn't a problem yeah that's a that's a question with uh my sons I like to pose, like we always like to do hypotheticals, like would you do blank if it meant we could go back to life the way it was before? I always think of March 13th because school where I work, that's the last day of school we had. Yeah. And it's usually, yep, I'd do it. <laughs> you know, me and, a, well, me and a good friend of mine, that's uh, how we would gauge how badly we wanted to avoid something. Like how many Billy Madison, no, not Billy Madison, gosh, Dixie. Adam Sandler, Adam movie, Sandler, where he's the hockey player. Oh, uh, Happy Gilmore. Yep. Thank you. That's what I meant. The, gol- so, the golfer. Disregard Happy Gilmore. How many Happy Gilmore baseballs to the chest would you take if it meant we could have full sports tomorrow? You, so you remember where he's in the batting cage, just taking, taking him. You know where the the coach like, what's what's he? What are you doing? Like, Get ready for hockey season. <laughs> <laughs> Only so many days left. I sixty mile an hour, jugs baseballs. I if the if if I had to stand there to take those if in order to go back to I'd do it. Yeah. I mean you take a whole you take two buckets. Well, I think if I took one bucket I'd be so sore and numb I wouldn't even feel a second bucket. <laughs> so I mean probably have a bunch of bruises, but if I had to go back, yeah, it'd probably be something. Yeah, there's worth not it. much I, you know, wouldn't do within reason. I'm not gonna you know, go back to the kill baby Hitler like I'm not gonna kill a baby. Like what yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I just wish it was back to normal. But I'm sure I'm, you know, there's nothing we can do about it except uh, forge ahead. And yep. Deal with uh, just, this different reality. Just like all players, coaches, and fans are, are hoping for. Yeah. Every time we think our St. Louis Cardinals are going to get out of quarantine. <laughs> and then you get an update. Ah, game's canceled. Doubleheaders postponed. What I see, I think I heard today, they have. 45 days now to get 55 games in i just don't see how it's possible yeah, you're pitching everybody like three innings at a time it'd, it'd be like well, the st louis cardinals have made their 31st transaction of the week as yeah. they've used 12 pitchers yeah because they had seven double headers this week <laughs> yeah, it's i don't know yeah. oh i wonder if the other teams are looking at their schedule and going oh we got st louis next week we'll have a couple days off yep i mean but ultimately hope those guys are healthy exactly you know, and then I saw today was that New Zealand had gone 102 days without a case, and they had one. Really, on an island? What happened? Did, I have questions. Did, did somebody leave? Did, some, did, yeah, did somebody come back? Like, oh, I've been gone for the last three months. Like, <laughs> how did you just have one random pop up? Wow, <laughs> that's when you're like a father for his 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 one daughter. His second guy's coming. Like, no, with shotgun on the front step. You need to you need to stay out of here. <laughs> 
Oh, but with that, uh, let's go ahead and bring in Coach Billy Kennedy as he joins the show to talk Murray State basketball. And we are joined by Coach Billy Kennedy, former coach at Murray State and most recently at Texas A&M. Coach Kennedy, how you doing today? Doing good. It's good to be on. So we'll jump right into it here, Coach. You take over at Murray State your first year. You're taking over for Mick Cronin, who had a you know a 7.42 winning percentage. So, what were the expectations that that you had, and what kind of pressures did you feel taking over for Mick? Well, when you think of Murray State, you think about winning and success. So, when I took the job over, I anticipated having some guys back and and having a strong team coming back. But unfortunately, when coaches take over jobs this transition with players movement so we lost a lot of guys and we literally only had four guys back off of that team that lost to North Carolina that Mick had and <clears throat> the kid uh, Witherspoon that we had that was really good player for us he broke his foot in the North Carolina game and his foot really never healed and got back to normal so he was one of the four that were back but he wasn't healthy and, uh, and we were able to get a, a bunch of uh, basically a whole new team I think we signed nine new players the next year and fortunately they were a, a pretty good nine group that allowed us to keep winning and keep building on the tradition that Murray State has of success so during the 2009-2010 campaign I mean it was a historic season for Murray State as the team went 31-5 and with a trip to the NCAA tournament and everyone remembers the buzzer beater against Vanderbilt. I mean, if I remember correctly, the shot was by Denaro Thomas that won the game. However, I don't think it was designed for him. If I remember that correctly, it was for Isaac Miles. So, kind of walk us through those, you know, right. final seconds in that uh, in that game. Well, the thing about Vanderbilt, uh, from a strategy standpoint, on underneath out of bounds, they show zone, but go man when the ball gets in. So we were kind of prepared knowing that they were going to do something that they always do with that. We put a big guy on the ball, so we kind of went to one four alignment, tried to do a lot of alignment that we we don't – something new that they hadn't seen. And I thought you could see some pause in there. When we went one four across, they, they kind of hesitated a little bit and weren't sure how they were going to match up with that with the, with the zone defense that they they do underneath out of bounds. And we were trying to get Isaac Miles coming off two screens for the for the shot, and uh, he hit hit a game winner for us earlier in the year. And I just thought he he's a guy that he would make the right decision and make the right play and. He came off of the, both of the screens and the Vanderbilt switched out on him. And in doing so, they left an arrow Thomas open and Isaac made the right play. Took one, one or two dribbles and got the narrow the ball. Narrow got a good shot and fortunately made, made a tough shot. And the rest was history. It was a great win to beat a very good Vanderbilt team. Isaiah Cannon was a key component to that 09-10 season. Everybody knows his name now, given his NBA career. How instrumental was he to you and that 09-10 team? I mean, he was just a freshman at the time. Yeah, he was a freshman, and he had two seniors in Isaac Miles and B.J. Jenkins that he actually came off the bench and 
and played, and most people thought we were crazy because he was our best offensive player and really our most talented player and probably our best all-around player. But defensively, Isaiah was behind those two seniors, and so that was our mentality and our mindset and the strength of our program. It was like, oh, good, we were defensively. But he, he was a big key to our success because he could go get a make a shot and go get a basket when things broke down and offensively he was just really gifted and talented and scoring the ball and, um, he obviously was a big key for our success in the, in the next few years the success that Murray State continued to ride on his shoulders because he's so talented so I know we're talk we were just talking about the, the Vanderbilt game but like outside of like a postseason game was there like a game that stood out to you? Like, wow! I mean, that was a big win for our program. Well, <clears throat> that year we were seventeen and one in OVC play, and the one loss that we had was at Moorhead State, and um, that was a we had a good streak going in league play. Had won seventeen in a row, and and we're doing some special things and probably when we, we, our head got a little bit too big and so we went on the road and to play at Moorhead's a tough place to play and they had Ken Fareed and they had a good basketball team and they beat us and uh, I think it got our attention and gave us a better sense of urgency going into the conference tournament that hey, if we don't perform at a high level we can get beat and we ended up playing Moorhead State in the finals and fortunately a little revenge factor I think was motivated by that beating us at their place and that was a big win for us well, uh, I mean a, a big learning lesson that we lost from losing that game at Moorhead at the, the last league game well I mean as you had said that you know Moorhead State had a great team now while you know your team you know was basically was the best in the Ohio Valley that year uh Kenneth Fareed on Moorhead, he, I mean, arguably still one of the better players in the Ohio Valley that season and basically in the history of the Ohio Valley, too. Yeah, he's, he's a special player. He played with great energy on both ends of the floor, and uh, they had played Louisville uh, in the tournament either the year before or the year after with him leading them, and they had a very good basketball team. While we're on sort of the same topic as, you know, what game stood out to you in the Vanderbilt game in the NCAA tournament. You know, you guys played Butler in the next round, and you guys ended up, you know, falling just short. But it was a great game to against a team that ended up, you know, going extremely far in the NCAA tournament. And what was kind of like your message to the team after the Vanderbilt game going into the game against Butler and then what was like the message after the game against Butler well we knew we were playing a good team Butler had beaten uh, UTEP in, in our regional um, and we knew they were good they had a really good season but we thought we could compete with them just because they were a, a mid-major power but they, they weren't. It wasn't like you were playing Carolina or Duke, although they ended up having that season in like Carolina and Duke in the, in, in the NCAA tournament. But we thought we matched up well with them, and it was a heck of a game. And um, the kid that plays for the Celtics now got a deflection and had a great steal at the end, and we ended up following and made two, they made 
some free throws, I think, or scored at the end to go up two. And we came down and with just a few seconds left, and he got a deflection. Gordon Hayward got a deflection and won the game for him. But it was a game that went all the way down to the wire to the end. And uh, when we saw how good Butler was, it made us feel pretty proud that we played well and also disappointed that we didn't get a shot off at the end to possibly win and maybe make the advancement that they did. So do you think the OVC gets enough credit for the kind of talent that they've had over the past and, and even right now? I mean, you're doing some NBA scouting. Do people outside the OVC realize the kind of talent that comes through there? No, I mean, I think that's probably the case in a lot of smaller leagues. But the OVC, just the basketball tradition of that league and how hard it is to play at some of those places on the road. And it's a bus league. And um, it's really got traditionally it's really it's a basketball league and it's a basketball power that unless you're from those areas you don't realize how good a league it is so it's no secret that murray seems to be a starting point for coaches that you know want to get to the highest level in the ncaa if they do you know want that you know in their track record but as you look at murray state mark godfried mick cronin steve prome and yourself have all moved on to have outstanding seasons at Power 5 schools. What is it about Murray State that draws such great coaches? Well, they understand who they are. It's a basketball power, and the university's behind it 100%. Um, The other sports, all whether they understand it or not, understand that basketball's king, and for everybody to do well, as a program or as a university, basketball has to do well, and they so they invest in the program, and and it, it means something when the whole it's a small town and small community, but everybody follows Murray State basketball. So when you lose and you go out to eat, you feel the pain when you see people <laughs> because they let you know, hey, what happened last night, and they follow it. And so there's a, a, more of a sense of urgency in winning, and, and it's in, the program is invested by the university makes a commitment to being successful. So the Ohio Valley made the decision a couple of years ago to move that conference tournament from Nashville to Evansville. You like that move? Is that a lateral move? I mean, there has to be a special feeling about going to Nashville, Tennessee to play in your conference tournament. Well, to me, Nashville more regionally, uh, and that's the only thing that I experienced was Nashville. We didn't experience uh, when I was there. We, it wasn't in Evansville, but so I can't really comment on how well it's been in Evansville, but uh, Nashville, you had good support everybody could get there and the fans could get there so the tournament had a really good atmosphere for it um whether it was tennessee state at the time or austin p was really good and more had fans were able to get there and uh, it was a good setting for a conference tournament especially at that time of the year when everybody's playing tournaments you're fighting for fans and um we had pretty Murray State always had support in, in tournament play. Murray State's going to travel anywhere, but Nashville was obviously seemed like a home court advantage at times. So, where was your favorite place to play on the road in the OVC? Maybe because of the atmosphere or because of how nice the facility was. Now, I know Murray State's got you know the premier place to play in the Ohio Valley, 
but outside of the CFSB, you know, center, where was your favorite place to go to? Well, for us, Austin P was a big rivalry, and uh, Dave Luce was the coach there, and the court's named after him now, and they're really good, and it was a sold-out, usually packed place when we played a game there, and that atmosphere was pretty fierce and competitive, so during my time, Austin P was the, the toughest place to go play and get a win. Well, we're both kind of foodies here and kind of our uh, hook question that we like to ask. When you were in the OVC, did you have a favorite place that you like to go eat? I mean, was it something simple like going to, to, to Ryan's or Golden Corral or did you have someplace else to kind of get away? <laughs> no, no, although we, we, we made some of those stops, but I would say uh, the barbecue spot in Nashville, um, the famous jazz guy, Jorkin, can't remember his name, uh, but it's named after him. It's right there on the main street in Nashville, and it uh, was a good barbecue spot that we liked to eat at, and the music was good. Our guys liked that, and so that was one of our favorites when we went on the road. Okay. Uh, just recently, uh, you coached Team Heartfire in the TBT tournament. What was it like being a part of that tournament, you know, with like all the everything going on right now in the world? Because basically the TBT tournament was like the first basically sporting event that was on live television that, you know, people could bet on, watch live, whatever the case may be. So what were your thoughts on being a part of that? And what are your thoughts on the Elam ending? Well, first, it was great to be a part of it and coaching and coaching guys again. Uh, we had a lot of guys who play professional older guys and they understand the sense of urgency and they understand that they're playing for money and playing for a big payday so that part was exciting and then it's first class tbt does a great job dan frio who runs the tournament does a great job of committing to excellence and just everything was done the right way the bubble that we they created there was i knew the nba would work because us the bubble worked in the TBT tournament and at a much larger scale out CNBA is, but I knew it was possible because we were tested like every day. We were there, I think I was tested seven times and, uh, and none of the players after the first couple of teams got eliminated for testing positive that, uh, it, once you, you weeded all that out, it worked. So that was fun to be a part of a first class tournament and the Elam was, it was totally different I, I knew about it and watched it but I never really coached it it just rises to a whole nother level every possession is big because you're playing to eight and we were only up four unfortunately and then the Purdue team that we played made a good run and it's whoever gets hot and can execute and be efficient uh, offensively and defensively uh, taking good shots and knowing what you're looking for is, is very important. And uh, the Elam is totally different because without a time and score being as much as a factor as just trying to get those eight points is the biggest key. So did you find that you were trying kind of learning on the fly as how to coach differently, you know, the, not the classic uh, – we're going to hold on to the ball or we're going to foul type of situation because that kind of goes out the window. Yeah, that, that goes out the window. But I think where it helps is teams that have been together 
and just the efficiency and, and execution and knowing who your best players are. And we had a team that we put together. It was real quick, and it was a, it wasn't uh, as cohesive as maybe the Purdue team with guys who knew their their best players were and where they were going with the ball. They were a little bit more efficient than we were. And I think when you look at see Marquette team on it, those guys have played together now the last few years and played together some in college. So um, it's obvious that, that that's a factor. So the last thing I would like to add, um, I know we hadn't talked to you about it prior to the interview. Uh, when you were at Texas A&M, uh, I forget how many seconds were left in the game. But if if I remember correctly, because I was watching it live on television, I think you know where I'm going with this. What were what was your thought on? Because I think you guys were down like a 12 or 11 or possibly double digits with like less than a minute left in the game, and you guys came back and won. Yeah, we were we were down 12 or 44 seconds to go, and uh, against Northern Iowa, who's really really good, had a really good team, and really deserved to win the first 39 minutes and 2016 seconds, whatever it is, <laughs> that they outplayed us, and um, it was just one of those blessings from God. Everything that went went well for us to, went wrong for them and it, and we our guys kept playing and Alex Caruso who's now with the Lakers really set the tone with that because he just plays so hard on both ends of the floor and whether you're winning or losing he's going to he's going to play at a high level and we our guys kind of followed his lead and the kid Daniel House who's playing with the Rockets was really good in that segment so you had two pros that played at a high level and really got a the favor of a lot of positive things that went well in that situation because it's it's almost impossible to do and uh, that's why it's supposedly the greatest comeback in NCAA history. Well, and you had to feel pretty good about it because I mean Northern Iowa had proved that they were, you know, accustomed to playing in tight situations. That's the year I think they won the Missouri Valley tournament on the last second shot. I think they had a, a great game right before they saw you guys. So they were you know, had some guys that were should have you, you expected to be more composed in that situation. Yeah, well, I think they made a half court shot against Texas to to beat Texas. So right. They they were a very good basketball team, and I know they were sick after it, and we were just elated and thankful because <laughs> we knew how fortunate we were. Uh, to kind of wrap this up here, uh, one of the last questions I had, and. It can either be at your time at Murray State, Texas A&M, one of your other uh, coaching uh, stops. Who was the toughest player to like to defend, like for your team when you were coaching? Like maybe one of the hardest guys, best players you've ever played against as a coach. Well, probably most recently Jamal Murray. Um, as I watch him run around for the Nuggets the other day and put on a show. Um, uh, against K- Kentucky in the double o- overtime game for the SEC tournament championship, he hit big shot after big shot, and we couldn't guard him. So just having seen him play recently makes me think of him off the top of my head. But there were quite a few good. Robert Covington was a pretty good player in the OVC that was hard to guard and hard to stop, and you could never really control Fareed because he played so hard. So it's been a be 
wrong to just name one guy, but those are the guys that come to the top of my head right now. So throughout your time as a college coach, and I, I couldn't tell you how many coaches have you know had this accomplishment in their life. Uh, can't be too many, but I mean, as a coach, you were coach of the year in three different conferences, which is very tough to do, especially you know at a mid-major conference, you know, twice, and then going to uh, a Power Five conference. So not many coaches, I don't think, have done that three times. So as a heck of a track record as you have had in your uh, college coaching career, um, you know, you were with Texas A&M last year. Is there anything you're doing right now to stay around the game of basketball? Yeah, I've been scouting for the Brooklyn Nets and getting ready for the draft a little bit, and it's allowed me to stay involved and go to a lot of college practices and college games in the ACC, the SEC, and the Big 12 mostly. And so that's been fun to go watch some other teams practice, which you don't get a chance to do when you're a head coach of a program. You can't leave your team. And so I've learned a lot, and hopefully that will help me get an opportunity when this COVID stuff settles down and they start hiring coaches again and hate to say it, firing coaches again. Um, but hopefully I'll have another opportunity to be a head coach and can invest in some kids' lives and that I've been blessed to have been able to do at a number of schools. Well, I know we'll be rooting for you to get another head coaching job. Um, it was very great having you on. Um, you've been one of the I mean, you've been a premier coach in the Ohio Valley, and you had an outstanding career at Texas A&M, and, you know, hope the best for you going forward. All right, Chris. All right, TJ. Thank you. Thanks, Coach. Appreciate it. Yep, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And just want to give a special thanks to Coach Kennedy for taking time out of his schedule to join the show. It was great hearing his thoughts about the Vanderbilt game and, you know, his time at Murray State, but really need to hear his thoughts on the TBD tournament towards the end of the interview. Yeah, I, it was interesting to see, you know, it sounds like he would jump at the chance to do it again. It sounded like he had fun with it and just oh, yeah. kind of fell short against that Purdue club. I was impressed, and coaches are this way because he probably thought about it for hours and hours afterwards, but breaking down that last play against Vanderbilt, like this is what they did. We knew that they were going to do that, so we gave them a different look, and they went, I mean, just like, like it just happened. I had a chance to hear Bill Self speak years ago, and he still could break down the last few minutes oh, yeah. of their national championship game, you know, and you can't challenge him on it. Like, nope, coach, that's not what happened, you know, but... Well, yeah, and to, and to have that, you know, that memory still, because, I mean, think of how many games he has coached since that game. I mean, yeah. hundreds. Yeah. And there seems to be, there always seems to be a handful that stick out to you, like, sure. that. you remember play by play and exactly what happened. And, you know, probably, you know, not quite like it happened. You know, it becomes better and better over the over years, the year. and worse and worse over the years. But it's still, you know, pretty relatively new. And sorry to the Northern Iowa fans that had to listen to that uh, about their uh, comeback that A&M made against in that year. Yeah. That's kind of like that uh, part of the interview we had with, I think it was Coach Forrester. He said, you know, when we have, when we when I have like a conversation with one of my good buddies or somebody, you know, I coached, you know, years ago, we'll, we'll start talking and be like, hey, you remember that time, you know, I had like three straight threes in the corner and then like two years later, it goes up to like six in a row. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But... Uh, with that, we'll make our way into our final Mount Rushmore segment for the schools, as this week we rounded out with Wichita State and Tennessee Martin. TJ, I'll let you go first with your first Wichita State one. 
Well, I'll start off with I had to fight recency bias and uh, maybe be a shock. And I can see people having a problem with this, but I did not include Fred Van Vliet. Well, that's shocking. Yes, it is. Wait, dynamite drop in, Monty. <laughs> and Ron Baker. Uh, just ultimately, when I looked at the uh, resumes of these other guys, I found it hard to leave them off, too. And, you know, maybe somebody in 20 years is like, yeah, we'll, we'll add, you know, Fred Van Vliet. Sure. Uh, so I started off. I think the easiest one was Xavier McDaniel, 1981 and 1985, second in scoring with 2,152 points and first in rebounds with 1,359. His senior year led the nation in scoring and rebounding. Yeah. So both. He, both? Both. Well, I mean, I have a hard time believing why this guy was number yep, one. Yep. And he also led the nation in rebounding as a sophomore. So what were you doing your junior year, X? Like, where were you? <laughs> I took the year off. But uh, consensus, first-team All-American as a senior, MVC 50 grace. They even had a starting five that they did when they did all that, and he was one of the, the starting five for the MVC okay. all-time. Two-time Larry Bird winner, then all the normal uh, Wichita State Hall of Fame, MVC Hall of Fame, his numbers retired. He's in the College Basketball Hall of Fame in Kansas City. He was the fourth overall draft pick in the 1985 draft with Seattle, and he ended up playing about 12 seasons with eight different teams. But I always remember him with the Sonics. I figure okay. that, that he kind of had some pop culture appearances here and there. It felt like it was always <laughs> in his uh, Seattle green and white. So <clears throat> to, I mean, to me, that was easily that's a no-brainer yeah that it seems like it so who'd you have for your first one at uh, tennessee martin so my first one also a no-brainer in my opinion uh lester hudson played at ut martin from 2007 to 2009 uh he's not their career leader in points but he is third with 1727 number one in career field goals made with 604 top 10 in rebounds with over 500 uh, top 10 in assists with 283, and he's also up there in steals, so he's a good defensive player as well. Third in steals with nearly 170. OVC Player of the Year twice during the 07-08 season and 08-09 campaign. Those, that same two years, he was also OVC Male Athlete of the Year. So not only was he considered the best basketball player, he was considered the best male player for all sports those two seasons. First team All-OVC twice, OVC All-Tournament team twice, and during one of his years, they were the OVC regular season championship. Uh, they went 22-10. and 10. All-American for num numerous college outlets, um, drafted by the Boston Celtics with the 58th pick during the 09 draft, and he is currently playing overseas most recently with the Flying Leopards, a pro team in China. I'd love to see their mascot, I, the Flying Leopards. I want a shirt. Yeah, that's one I don't have. Uh, if you had a Flying Leopard shirt, I'd, <laughs> we'd probably quit recording now and you could walk out the door. <laughs> but yeah, I think that was a no-brainer easily with those awards, especially the big one, you know, the top male athlete in the whole conference, yeah. you know, basketball or otherwise. So second on my list is Antoine Carr. He uh, was there from 79 to 83, so he and McDaniel were there at the same time for, for a couple years, not the whole full four years. Fourth in scoring with 1,911 points, first in block shots, and he's eighth in rebounding. He still holds the single-game scoring record with 47 points against Southern Illinois Carbondale. 
Larry Bird winner, MVC Top 50, Hall of Fame, Wichita State Hall of Fame, two MVC tournament titles. He was actually drafted eighth overall by the Pistons in the 83 draft, but they could not come to terms. So he took a year and he went and played in Europe, took the old Danny Ferry route. And went and played. I think he probably did it before Danny Ferry did it. Because I think Ferry was 85 when he did that with the, was it the Cavaliers? I think he refused to play for. That could be. And then, but he still came back, had a 16-year NBA career with six teams. And probably the highlight of his pro career was back-to-back finals appearances with Utah Jazz in 97 and 98. Back-to-back appearances. Yeah, That's... yeah I think the 97 team was the... the it was it was a decent guy played those years. I, I remember Jordan something like that. I'm not sure, but to be back, I mean, that's just, that's marginal to get their back to back years. Yeah, uh, that's you know it's like we we had this conversation. Uh, I've had it with several people. It's like you hear you know people talk about the Bills that went to four straight Super Bowls. Yeah. Like oh that's terrible. Like if you went to the championship game of any sport four straight years, I mean yeah it's it sucks. Oh yeah, that's awful, brutal. But, but nobody else. <laughs> How many did you go to? Uh, none. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but instead, they get you know, get monikers like Bill yep. stands for Bill. Boy, I like losing Super Bowls. <laughs> well, and that you know, it's not like exactly like the Bills, but it's like the the Bengals. Like Coach Marvin Lewis, he'd get them to the playoffs like so many times. It would just be like, oh, one and done, mm-hmm. out. But you know, I, being from St. Louis, I would have taken that from like two thousand. Five to, yeah, to when they moved. To when they moved. Yeah, yeah. So cut out our hearts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, second on my list, Miles Taylor played at UT Martin from 2011 to 2016. Career leader in points with 1,734. Uh, number two in career rebounds with 765. Fifth in block shots with over 80. Uh, Made the most free throws out of anybody to come through Tennessee Martin with 534. OVC freshman of the year during the 11-12 season. Uh, didn't play overseas all that all that long. He did have a short stint overseas with Regatas Lima. Uh, that's yeah. That was the only team I think he uh, he played on that I was able to uh, find. Wow. My next one, uh, third one, was Dave Stallworth, 1962 to 1965. So I have a little bit of trivia here for you. Okay. As we get through this. Third in scoring. He's also eighth in rebounding. So those of you that were listening, he, Antoine Carr and he are tied for eighth. I don't want you to think that this guy can't count, which I can't, <laughs> but the, not, this isn't the case. Average 24.2 points and 10 and a half rebounds over his career. Okay. He was... First-team consensus All-American as a junior in 1964. In 1965, he led the Shockers to the Final Four, where they managed to lose twice. Did you know that they used to have a third-place game in the NCAA tournament? I don't believe I did. Until 1975, they had a third-place game. So UCLA (laughs) wins the NCAA title. I think it was their second title. Gail Goodrich was a really good player then. And then Princeton beat uh, the Shockers in the third place game. So I, I had a, a buddy of mine that played in the high school state tournament. His team lost two games his senior year, and one of them was the semifinal. So they ended up winning third place. I was like, what was it like playing third place? It was, it was the worst. 
He goes, coach didn't even have a scouting <clears throat> report for us. Didn't go over pregame. Just like, guys have fun. And because and, and that's something you forget about when you cheer. If your team wins, you're like, yeah, you know, they they finished third. Like, no, they expected to win when they got there too. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that I think uh, us younger people don't quite know, or you younger people don't quite know. <laughs> MVC Hall of Fame, MVC 50 greatest retired number, Wichita State Hall of Fame. He was a third overall pick by the New York Knicks in 1965. So he wins a title with the Knicks in 1970. So he and Walt Frazier were on that 1970 Knicks team. Okay. So he actually, Stallworth played more, got pressed into service because of Willis Reed's injury. Willis Reed was, you know, the, the famous, like, here comes, here he comes, walking down the tunnel and stuff like that. And so he had, had eight seasons with the Knicks and the Bullets, so the Baltimore and Washington Bullets. He was there during their transition. So, you know... Pretty pretty good resume to put together. Oh, there. I'll say. You know, I w- just getting off topic as we want to do. I would love to see a game at Madison Square Garden. That'd be awesome. I've looked into. My wife knows it's already, so she can listen and hear this. I've looked into tickets for like the Big East tournament. Like I, I can go to a quarterfinal game. I, we've we've toured the place, and it's just fantastic. I would love to just. It'd see be it great. I think it'd be more or less just getting up there. Probably more, probably more expensive than. I don't know what a first round game would be up there, what the right. price would be, but yeah, your hotels, which you're going to all worry that too, about, you know, so can, and, and how you're getting there. Yeah. We can make it in a day. We can drive in a day. <laughs> Pennsylvania is not that long. No, it only takes you nine hours to get from one side to the other. And we won't even talk about the tolls. <laughs> so that's my, that's my third guy. Who'd you have Uh third on my list? Uh, believe it's pronounced machete mike machete uh played at ut martin from 1984 to 1988 if i am incorrect please let me know would like to know when i'm wrong on the uh, pronunciation uh second in career points with 1729 third in field goals made with 575 uh he is in the top 10 list at ut martin and assists with 257 and just like lester hudson he was a good defensive player as well, fourth in steals with over 150. Now, when he played at UT Martin, they were not part of the Ohio Valley. They were part of the Gulf South. And during that, he was on the first team twice, Gulf South Conference Player of the Year during the 87-88 campaign. And during the same time, he was their team was the Gulf South regular season champions. They went 20-8 and eight during that uh, span. I don't know that I was aware there was a Gulf South Conference. Is it still? Um, are you are you asking me if I was aware too? I, I don't know. It was. I mean, I I've never heard of it. Uh, I mean, I hadn't heard of it either. Okay. I could have learned something. I could have sat here and be like, oh, "Are you kidding me, TJ? I, I have known about the Gulf South for years. <laughs> I have a shirt. I almost started a podcast on it instead of the OVC. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So my last one, and this. Honestly, when I was putting this together, I my my fourth guy with the other three was Fred Van Vliet. And then I came across this guy, and I just could not convince myself to take him off or to leave him off the list. So Cleo Littleton, excuse me, Cleo Littleton played from 1951 to 1955. He is still the school's all-time leading scorer, even though he played in the 50s. 2,164 points, so he's like 12 points ahead of the X-Man. He's still sixth in rebounds. He averaged 18-plus points per game each season, so not over the arch of his career, 
But if you look at his average freshman, sophomore, junior, senior year, 18 plus each year. I think one year was over 20 or 21 points. Okay. Charter member of the Wichita State Hall of Fame. Retired number, 50 greatest, NBC Hall of Famer. This is a stat I found. Reportedly, he played 184 straight games from his sophomore year of high school through his senior year at Wichita State and never missed a game. 184? 184. So over those seven years. So you the last three years of high school, four years of college. Played 184 games. Wow. Straight. He was drafted by the Pistons, but they weren't in Detroit. Okay. They were in Fort Wayne. Drafted in 1955, but chose not to play in the NBA. He decided to stay in Wichita and uh, became a very successful businessman. And they have an endowment scholarship for the men's basketball team at Wichita State that is named after Cleo Littleton. Okay. And he was the first African-American west of the Mississippi to score 2,000 points. Wow. Now, that's an ESPN stat for you. That is a ESPN stat indeed. And when I think of an ESPN stat, they, you know, they'll flash up there like, this is the first guy to have 21 points, seven rebounds, three assists, and four block shots in a game since last Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> you need to break Like, I love nice round numbers. Give me something divisible by five when you're like. Yeah, you just told me a three whole three sentences in a matter of. Yeah. Instead of, being, instead of like a baseball version, like, hey, 40, 40 home runs, 40 stolen bases. He's the first guy to have 50 home runs and 17 stolen bases. Like, <laughs> <laughs> 17? How did you come up with how, how did we leave it there? Yeah. So I, you know, I was pretty impressed with it. But again, if you said, you know, Van Vliet deserves to be on there, Baker, we can have that discussion uh, as long as you're buying. I mean, that. Those two were part of, you know, my heyday in watching. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and it's easy. I think that's part of the recency, too. But, you know, they still went 35-0 and 0 and still, you know, went to the Final Four. And, you know, I, I have – do we have time for me to do a little sidebar here? I don't think I've told this story. Yes, we have time. About Wichita State's uh, undefeated season. So that particular year – Tickets were hard to come come by for the tournament, the, okay. the Arch Madness. So we actually had tickets on the end, and right next, right right behind us, sat the players. So like when they got done, like how late we got our tickets. Then between games, they come and sit there and stuff like that. And there's some kids. I say kids, you know, in their twenties, sitting across a row from us. And Indiana State's basketball team is there. And okay. This one guy starts chatting, talking to him, and he's like. Kid says, "So did you guys play Wichita State?" He's like, "Yeah, you know the players. Like, yeah, we we played against them twice. Oh yeah, how'd you do? Wichita State's thirty-five and zero. This is what I'm thinking in my head. Wichita State's thirty-five and zero, and you're asking this player, <laughs> how did you do against Wichita State? And to his credit, and I actually oh. had the chance to share this story with with Coach Lansing one time." The, to the kid's credit, he goes, well, we lost to him both times. Like, yeah, yeah, they're pretty good, huh? Like that. So just kind of went on about his business. Like, and I, so it was going on behind me. Like, the players were sitting behind me. So I was just kind of like, all right, I'll kind of, you know, I'm not going to say anything. And then those, that, those kids left, and I turned around to the player. Like, did he actually ask you how you guys did against Wichita State? And you know when you had that shared moment with a stranger? Like, the kid just kind of gave that cream. He's like, yeah, like, they ain't undefeated. <laughs> Sometimes you just wonder if, like, you know, some people even think before they 
they yeah. say something like that. Well, how'd you guys do? Well, they, they haven't lost a game. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, we lost. Yeah, I wish I remembered the kid's name from Indiana State, but I, I knew at the time that I, I ran to Coach Lansing, and when I started telling the story, he's like, oh, when you said the name, I was worried you were going to say something. Best. I was like, no, I said it was great. He handled himself so well. Like, I even told him, like, you did really well, but like, not... <laughs> Not to come off as sarcastic or yeah. anything. He's like, no, like they, like, like they ain't undefeated. <laughs> oh, but with that, uh, the last guy on my list, Dwayne Powell, played at UT Martin from 1992 to 96. Fourth in points, uh, top five in assists with 330. Uh, leads the leads Tennessee Martin's career list in steals with 263. Now, the next closest on that list had 175, so nearly 100 more ahead, and it could be a while before anybody breaks that uh, record. Most three-point field goals made with over 300. Uh, Didn't crack the first team All-OVC during his time, but did make the second team All-OVC three times. OVC All-Newcomer team during the 92-93 season. Is that the the phrase, always a bridesmaid, never a bride? If you're a th- second team three years in a row. Yes, I guess that does that does fit. <laughs> you keep getting invited. You keep getting to buy the crappy dress. <laughs> never get to wear the white <laughs> one. <laughs> you can wear this dress any day. Random Tuesday. Ding dong. Hey, you were right. <laughs> of course I love chiffon. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. You're technically not wrong. <laughs> Oh, boy. Hey, you made second team. Thanks, coach. <laughs> For the third time. <laughs> it's like getting the world's greatest dad coffee mug, and you go to work, and everyone's got a world's greatest dad one. coffee mug. Like, hey, wait a second. <laughs> oh. Oh, my so, gosh. But we're with, completely off track now. Oh, we're way off, far from it. Uh, but with that, uh, <laughs> you got any final thoughts? No, I just uh, enjoy doing this. I've enjoyed kind of learning some of these things, and dazzled everybody with my uh, trivia knowledge of Bob Gibson playing at Creighton. Creighton. <laughs> you know, like my father-in-law is a huge Cardinals fan. So we had dinner with uh, my in-laws last week after we had recorded the show. So I asked them the question and kind of the same way I did. And my mother-in-law goes, Bob Gibson? And my sons were like, yeah. So she was just holding it over. Her husband oh. said, like, oh, yeah, who knew it? Who knew it? But it's just, it's been fun learning about some of these guys. I think it's it's kind of like homework, though. Yeah, you have like, to do some research. Like and finding out, and like, you know, like one time Wikipedia told me that there were five retired numbers at a school, and everything else I found was like four. I'm like, okay, this is why you don't trust Wikipedia, or you have to at least back it up. And Well, it, it's, it's that, and then... Especially when we do our interviews, like we, you know, we don't want to just throw out some, you know, boring question like, oh, so, you know, uh, what was your, you know, what was your mindset going into this practice or something like, yeah. you know, I mean, try and find some good questions from like, you know, during their time at, you know, each respective school, like, you know, during this episode, we asked Coach Kennedy about, you know, mindset of what it was the message to the team after that Vanderbilt game and the Butler game, so. You know, we try and find good questions to where, you know, at least makes it interesting. So if if you don't like if you get bored from what we're saying, you know, maybe you're, you know, interested in, you know, what, you know, the coaches have to say or whoever we have on for the interview. Yeah, I think that's something that sometimes doesn't get taken into account uh, when coaches make decisions 
there's usually some other reason. Now, sometimes it's just gut, like, hey, I, I feel like this kid can do this. But there's other times, like, you know, we, we worked on this. I can tell you from the high school level, hey, we worked on this, and Chris just couldn't execute this play. So you might think he's a great player. We need him in the situation. But the play I want to run, he had trouble with, and I can't trust him in there right sure. now. Or, you know, just something else about the player. You know, sometimes you don't get your best free throw shooter out of the – out on the floor because you had him out for a substitution reason. And, you know, I was coaching a game one time, and fortunately for us, the home team was missing free throws. And my father was keeping the scorebook for our, for, for my team. And said the guys, the old guys at the score said, oh, geez, missed another free throw. Maybe we should practice free throws. I'm sure the other coach was like, oh, crap, you're right. <laughs> we haven't been doing that all year. <laughs> You know, or you hear at football games, my buddies that coach football, like, maybe you should try some tackling drills. Like, oh, you're right. We haven't done it yet. Somebody write that down. <laughs> tackling drills on Monday. <laughs> you know, and it's just, and it's not to say we don't miss things, but oh, sure. it's just sometimes you like to hear what a coach has to say yeah. about why, you know, maybe they thought this matchup would work. And, you know, the, the great thing about sitting in the stands is your plan never fails, unless you came up with the exact same plan coach did. Yeah, very true. Your never wrong. Never fails. So it's like, well, if you would have tried what I would, like, well, it couldn't have been any worse because <laughs> obviously my plan didn't work. <laughs> work. Uh, the last thing I got, um, and just want to tell the listeners, I know you can't you can't see it, but this is episode thirteen, and uh, TJ has finally ran out of teams to wear his shirts to the podcast because he's not wearing a Missouri Valley shirt right now. Uh, I, I think he's worn one every single show. And well, I've recycled because my weights have, has fluctuated so much. Some are medium, some are double XLs and um, medium ones are in my rear view mirror for a while. So, so uh, I do have one for every school in the Valley and in, in the Missouri Valley. And I don't know how many I have for the Ohio Valley. I have a handful. Do you even have one for, uh, I'm, I'm, I can't believe if I've missed it, but you even have one for Valparaiso since they're... Uh, mm-hmm. I have a t-shirt. Well, I mean, t- if you're listening, you may need to send TJ another shirt because his streak is broken at 12. So, But I still am wearing a college... He is wearing a college shirt, college yes. Polo. So this one was a gift. Those are even the best kind. It's like my... You know, my favorite clothes are the free ones. Like my favorite flavor of food is free. Free. Yep. Everybody likes free. <laughs> <laughs> but with that, that'll wrap up episode 13 here on View of the Valleys. For TJ Hoover, I am Chris Smith. Thanks for tuning in. A special thanks to Coach Billy Kennedy for joining the show. We'll be back next week for episode 14. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple and give us a follow on Twitter at View Valleys Pod. Enjoy the rest of your week. Have a good one, everybody.